right? They want the blood. They'll go live with the doofusness. That's what Yale says is the best part. What does she know? What does Yale know anyway? Cops. Why do we trust her? Well, she's a cop. Or she's not a cop, but... Okay, we should sit a little closer. I'm not giving you any cooties, dude. Relax. You wish. I wish I was giving you cooties. All right. There's a little... Come. There's a thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, hi. We're live uh, in Palomo Media Studios. Welcome to... Uh, Another exciting edition of um, this still yet to be named podcast, but I'm Nancy Rommelman here with. Should we call it Nancy's Table? We're Nancy's Table or the Nancy Show. I want to. I want to see your face more, not mm. just the microphone. Ugh, God, it's annoying. Um, hi guys. Um, hi, hi everyone. Why are we here tonight, Matt Welch? Uh, because we're here. That's, That's always right. an opportunistic reason to take advantage. Of the studio that we bought, but also because since the last time uh, you and I spoke, which was last week sometime, right? Yeah, a um, week ago. There's kind of some news on the thing that we've man- for some reason decided to talk about the first two times that we turned on the recording machine, which is um, stuff inside the New York Times, which I understand that you're writing about a little bit. I did. I wrote a piece for Newsweek that uh, posted on... Saturday night, I think. Yeah, I think Saturday night, Sunday morning. Um, and Matt, I believe you you actually scooped me by about a day for a reason. Well. R- writing about the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it, the Donald McNeil story, which we talked about before, um, he was the uh, pandemic reporter and a 45-year veteran of the paper, um, uh, fired because people got re-upset at a... Um, a trip that he took to Peru with high school students in 2019 and had been disciplined because he'd used the N-word in a context that at first, and again, we've talked about this in the first two episodes, um, that's all we kind of knew. Uh, some of the students had complained, some, six of the 26. Uh, six or their parents. Or their parents. Um, uh, had complained and said that he was racist and that he was um, sort of denying white privilege or supremacy or something, but it, the the... It's pretty thin otherwise, which is definitely an N-word. So on Friday, um, busy day at the New York Times of last week, uh, quick terse announcement from editor-in-chief uh, Dean Baquet and I think the publisher, uh, A.G. Sulzberger, that um, actually uh, there's no excuse for that kind of language in any context that uh, intent uh, doesn't matter, um, and they're pretty explicit about this. I don't have the language in front of me, but it was basically that. It, it, regardless of intent. Regardless of intent. Regardless of intent. Which echoed a letter that 150 journalists inside the Times had sent, and they also said very explicitly, um, you know, in, in fact, according to their own um, uh, human resources trainings or harassment trainings, they've been taught that intent doesn't matter. It's just the that's the way that the words uh, affect the victims. In their telling. So uh, Dean Baquet went from um, saying, hey, look, it was a one-off and I think people should have some grace to, in a course of about four or five days, saying, oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. intent doesn't matter. And so he was forced out. Um, some semantic. Uh, we will be parting ways, I think, or something like that. Yeah, but like it was definitely portrayed oh. as our decision. Um, and then on the same day, uh, Andy Mills, uh, who's their podcast uh, whiz, um, uh, they're resigned. That was less of a forced out situation, but there are some overlaps between the stories uh, in interesting ways. And then since all of that, 
um, there's been a bunch of weird ass behavior from. Okay, but wait, let's go back okay. a second. Yeah, well, yeah. Let's get there for a second. Yeah. So I, I don't think that you know, matter. I are particularly prescient in saying that when we had our first episode, which was exclusively pretty much devoted to Donald McNeil's situation when it was sort of unfolding, and then uh, last week when we were saying, like, if intent doesn't matter, how do you run a newspaper? I mean, like, how do you... How, I mean, it sounds like a little hyperbolic for me to say, like, well, if intent no longer matters at the New York Times, how can I trust anything that you write? But the fact is, that's what most people are saying these days. It's like, you've just told me in, in print, first from the 150 journalists who wrote to Salzberger and I guess um, Baquet saying, you know what, intent doesn't matter, it's how pe- way people feel, to when they let McNeil go saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter. So how do, how do you operate a newspaper that way? Like, I'm actually that at a loss. in its archives has the N-word, discussed very much in the same way that Donald McNeil used it on the trip, reportedly, which his resignation letter, in which he was completely apologetic, completely, uh, you know, people, I think Rich Lauer in the National Review um, wrote about this, that he sounded very struggle session-y, um, saying, you know, I, I realize now that it was terrible what I did, and I just ask for my colleagues for forgiveness. I'm sorry for what I've done. I care about this institution. Um, that was one of the things that, that the uh, that the 150 uh, letter signers had asked for, that he apologized to them. Um, he did, and it did a lot of good. Um, I felt um, really pretty terrible reading that letter. I mean, this is somebody who's 67 years old. He's had a 45-year career. He's really been on a high lately. He, you know, had just interviewed uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he's been on the daily as he has been um, since the beginning of the pandemic. And there was discussions that he was going up for a, a Pulitzer, and in eight days, his entire life changed. A- everything. And I know, you know, you'd say like, well, I would never, I would never, you know, apologize for something I hadn't done, or I would try to see it that way, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like I was broken. He, he struck me as someone that had been broken because it happened so fast. Here's, here is his uh, eight-day process. January 26, he's going to interview Anthony Fauci on The Daily, which is the most popular news podcast in the country. Uh, January 27th, also featured on The Daily, just to give us a breakdown of what is happening uh, on during the pandemic. January 28th, uh, story in The Daily Beast, um, which we now, I think, have confirmation was leaked from within the New York Times. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we had yeah. talked about this, but like uh, that's the phrase that Nicole Hannah-Jones um, used, and I think that she probably has more insight into personnel matters at the New York Times than most people do. Um, uh, so clearly someone leaked that he had been involved in a disciplinary case uh, the year before and had been disciplined, Two as years, a matter of fact. year and a half. Or, yeah. um, and uh, so then he has to deal with that. Um he fires off um, a, a one-sentence email to Eric Wemple at the Washington Post, the media writer there, saying basically don't believe everything that you read. Right. So he's got right. a, a, a little bit of a— He still a, had his sea legs at that point. It's a like, sense of defiance dude. and yeah. also like, you know, hey, maybe that Daily Beast uh, uh, story was kind of ridiculous or the, sort of the, the picture that it painted was ridiculous. Pilloried on Twitter— uh, routinely by journalists, including within the institution that he works. There are all hands on deck kind of meetings within the New York Times, letters agoni- agonizing. And then within, he also has his birthday on February 1st. So he turns 67 oh, just in the middle of well, that. Happy birthday. And then, yeah. uh, and then gets canned. So that was a little 
eight-day stretch for Donald McNeil. Uh, and one of the reasons that's interesting to talk about is the New York Times is still an influential newspaper. And to um, kind of suddenly declare that from their point of view that the intent of language doesn't matter, uh, now they're kind of backpedaling. Um, and this is the thing I, I actually want to talk to you about, Nancy. Um, There's a sense uh, from some people, and you've said this, so I want to check your temperature, that some people within the institution, and certainly without the institution, including Eric Wemple, who was initially like, you know, Donald McNeil, I don't know what he did, but it, Eric Wemple's second piece, which is really interesting, which actually wasn't the only thing that's done follow-up reporting on this at all about, like, what actually happened. He interviewed some of the students. Um, you get the sense that people realize, like, hold on a second. This is, this is getting pretty ridiculous. I think I've written this, or we talked about it, because of the speed with what happened with McNeil and because of how we've seen this rollout since last, was it July, when the whole uh, uh, James Bennett, Barry Weiss thing happened, um, I said to myself, the McNeil one is going to be a bridge too far. Uh, people are going to say, wait, wait a second. I don't, this do kind of doesn't make any sense. Uh, part of that was the Daily Beast reporting, which we questioned at the time. It was like, if you're, if you're telling us he did this terrible thing, well, why don't you tell us what it is? And if you don't know what it is, then tell us you don't know what it is. It was all... It and was, maybe tell us where, where you got the story from. Well, uh, okay, I will go back a little bit. I, because I have been looking at um, the, the Beast reporting, which was uh, Max Tanney, and I can't remember the other guy. Lachlan Cartwright. Lachlan Cartwright, and then someone else who followed up with Cartwright on the, another, the second one or third one about McNeil. Um, all of these stories, when it started with um, uh, James Bennett and Barry Weiss and Cotton, and then moving on to Caliphate, and then moving on to Rukmini, Kalamachi, and moving on to Andy Mills, wow, it's all Max Tanney. So, obviously, someone within the Times is feeding him stuff or they're feeding stuff to the Daily Beast who's giving it to Max Tenney. I don't know. But the campaigns, and it's, it's like the same drumbeat. It's weird. It's like you can hear, like, the drumbeat in the distance. And yes, and you know it's coming. But the thing about McNeil is it happened so fast. Those drums were there, and then they were here. And they were, like, overrun. And I thought, you know what? Too many people are asking questions. Too many people are saying, wait a second, this does not make sense. And now we're going to get into what I think you want to talk about, which happened in the past couple of days. Someone who crept onto my page and now had some other problems and uh, how I think we're seeing some of the machinations behind the curtain at the Times. Well, what, well, is, it, what is it that I want to talk about? Um, uh, so, oh. yeah. Yeah, I mean, as, as, uh, as part of this... Um, uh, what's the name of the kid who works for the Free Beacon? Adam. Eric. No, Aaron. <laughs> See, this Hold is on. why I, I should have brought my computer. But I got, like, well, you, you know, really I, I, can't, I can't help you, sir. Uh, I'm going to tell you exactly. It's not Aaron Hernandez. I'm going to tell you who his, what his name is because we've been, uh, yeah. you know, discussing. Um, um, Aaron Sabarium. Yes. Aaron Sabarium, who works for Free Beacon, who... Take it, Matt Welch, you're better at uh, this than I am. Uh, yeah, and again, I don't have it right in front of my face, but like he contacted Nicole Hannah-Jones and other people to follow up on the story and in her particular case to ask about the intent and, uh, you know, usage 
the use and what's the use and mention distinction, right, of, of the word. What's this? Sorry. Someone's, so th- thank, thank you, lovely Justin. readers. I, I, Justin, for letting us know. <laughs> I appreciate it. If my hands were long enough, I'd type an answer. Uh, yeah. Um, um, and she responded not by responding, but by posting his uh, uh, query on Twitter along with his telephone number for 71 hours. It laid up there. And, of course, his phone rang from people who did not wish him uh, positive vibes <laughs> there. He didn't make that big of a deal of it. And eventually the Times uh, spokesperson got back to him because this is in violation of the you know, explicit Times policy. You're not supposed to do stuff like that. And Twitter policy. And Twitter policy. And ethical policy. And just like acting like a grown-ass adult. You're acting like someone who does not have to face consequences. And you're acting like someone who is like, you know what? I got all this. It's been working out. It's all good. And uh, she basically thought that that was fine to do. She had that gal that crept onto her page and said something like, wow, he really thought you were going to answer him. He leaves his phone number. And, and she was like, girl. And then here's the part that drives me. I, I, I actually can't believe it. I can't believe it. So, um, you know, Justin, right, I actually was in touch with, um, with Aaron. And I was like, you know, did you get an apology from her? Did you get an apology from the Times? No, nothing. So eventually she does take it down after 71 hours. I don't even know if she claimed it was inadvertent. The Times. Yes. The Times uh, said, the spokesperson said that she had inadvertently uh, left his phone number up on Twitter. Inadvertently. This is the Times, right? This is. Inadvertently. Meanwhile, the guy that has whose number is up there has been in touch with her. Like, hi, my number is up there. Everybody has screenshotted it. Everybody's like, what the hell is going on? And she leaves it up for 71 hours. And then, and then you want to talk about like, well, some people don't face consequences. Some people say something bad or maybe bad a year and a half ago, and they're canned in eight days. And other people do this. And the Times comes out and says, well, you know, it was inadvertent. Okay, this, I'm sorry, this is a lie. This is a lie. And you, I, I'm sorry, I don't get all like verklempt here, but you know, I'm a New York City girl. I grew up with the New York Times. I do not want to believe that they have put themselves in a position where they feel like totally fine lying it's, to the public. It's okay just to lie. I mean, I don't, I don't think this is a product of an internal Times investigation to make sure that it was an inadvertent posting of a reporter's phone number that she then interacted with other people who were high-fiving her about. Not very inadvertent. So Times, which is a journalistic institution that is supposed to be all the news that's fit to print and the truth and whatnot, um, is out there lying to cover up uh, an employee who is always, for the most part, in the middle of these uh, personnel tussles uh, within uh, the paper and who herself has been the subject and of pretty great controversy. Um, the 1619 Project, which is a very kind of interesting, from my point of view, attempt to kind of recast American history as beginning not really in 1776, but maybe we should think about it from 1619 because that's when we um, basically uh, imported the institution of slavery. Um, and there were some very interesting essays in it, but there was, also, sure. there was also some crap. And she comported herself responding to historians and other people pointing out that one essay in particular was, was, uh, was not very good and not from someone who you describe as an expert historian on that. 
she comported herself just like with this combination of bravado and defensiveness and contemptuousness and just like in this case, some tweet deleting. Uh, and eventually, after uh, uh, a lot of, of this kind of chest thumping, they did issue some corrections. Sometimes they they rewrote or re-edited uh, the presentation of it. Or with, scrubbed it. Without <laughs> uh, mentioning, you know, uh, that they had, which is yeah. the usual thing to do in journalism. So all of this uh, does not trend in a positive direction for those who retain the ancient faith in the New York Times being the paper of record. I don't, um, which doesn't fill me with any kind of gladness. Um, I grew up with the same with the same faith and with the same enjoyment of the paper, which I don't have at all anymore. Um, less and less. Uh, I, the crossword's still good. I see it more as a, uh, as a place to go to find what are the guilts and anxieties of kind of upper middle class liberals about, about their consumption that they don't like. So, you know, they everyone's uh, shopping at Amazon, so let's have a, a three-part series about how um, the conditions at Amazon warehouses are terrible. Everyone's getting their nails done, but, but with the Cambodians and the Vietnamese. So let's do an art, uh, a three-part series, which was totally garbage, which Reason uh, Magazine and Jim Epstein in particular uh, absolutely pulled apart um, about like the you know immigration slavery of of nail salons, but it's always pointed at the anxieties of people. I right. see it. I see it like that, and that's the function. That's not the function that they claim to have, uh, certainly. But it is genuinely distressing to watch the comportment. Um, yes, of uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, um, which is by now we've, we've grown used to, but also the sense of brazenness of it. Like, oh, I'm not going to worry about the consequences of this. Of course, I'll be able to do this. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, kind of um, negative or some snarking on Twitter, like, you know, <laughs> maybe it was Kat Rosenfield who, who said this or somebody else, but. Um, you know, I wish that uh, Nicole Hannah Jones and Taylor Lorenz would just put Dean Becke out of his misery and fire him once and for all. Because <laughs> that's the other story about the New York Times that happened this same time. It involves Camille Foster from Fifth Column, among other people. So Taylor Lorenz, their social media reporter. Can uh, I can I cut in yeah. just for one yeah, second? Yeah, please do. I just want to say something, and it's not going to be like in defense of Nicole Hannah Jones, but it's just something that I am also thinking about her, someone that I do not know. Um, you know, it's not easy to be this controversial or celebrated or, you know, yes, maybe she's cut out this role for herself. Maybe it's bigger than she ever thought it would be. Maybe there are people that are, like, really counting on her. Maybe she had an awful childhood and, like, the meannesses that, that we see as meannesses that she shows. Maybe she had them, you know, perpetrated to her. I don't know. And I will say, which we didn't mention, she scrubbed her entire Twitter account. She erased the whole thing. It cannot be a very comfortable place for her in the past couple of days. And I actually do not wish that on anybody. But I do think as consumers, and obviously especially you and I, we care deeply about journalism. We care deeply about the efficacy of, of journalism. Um, I guess I think it's time for her to do a better job. I think it's time to not have this little narrow window that is that has been making what's allowable to say at the New York Times narrower and narrower and narrower. And if you don't do it, you're out, buddy. I think it's time to stop that. And maybe, maybe she'd be interested in stopping that. Uh, Glenn Greenwald uh, a few days ago had a, a pretty 
surprisingly for him, uh, vituperative piece uh, called, I think, Tattletale Journalism. Yeah. Or at least that's about Lorenz, mostly. About, about Taylor Lorenz, but she, he also talked about the Donald McNeil story there. Um, and uh, I think the phrase, it kind of sticks um, because, so Taylor Lorenz, social media reporter, uh, she's been trying to get on Clubhouse, which is this phone calling app that the tech bros do, um, that you need an invitation um, to go on to. And they clearly, the people who started it, don't like her for a lot of reasons having to do with um, uh, Scott Alexander, Slate Star, Codex. It's actually not his real name, but um, the, the paper was sort of trying to out him or talk about what his real name was as part of a story. And it was kind of the, the last straw for a lot of people in Silicon Valley thinking that the Times is now just weaponizing its power against people that it doesn't like for transgressions that it presumes. And um, she had been complaining and had had a history of of saying, like, uh, oh, my God, I'm in Clubhouse now. She had gotten in before, um, and I can't believe what I just heard. It's terrible. So she finally gets in again uh, recently, uh, gets into a room in which people are talking about the, um, the GameStop, you know, Wall Street bets, the stonks people uh, who happen who happen to call themselves as part of this group retards, retards. Um, which is like in the in a kind of uh, the mass hole uh, lexicon. Uh, it's also self-deprecating. It's got layers of, of whatever in it. Um, so she goes into this place where Mark Andreessen, who's the, I think the founder or co-founder of Clubhouse or has some involvement with it. Um, uh, and someone else was uh, talking about this just as a setup. And she, you know, within minutes of getting into the place, oh, my God, I can't believe that Mark Andreessen said the R word. Um, it's so terrible. It doesn't really you know, realize the damage that he causes. And then she screenshotted the pictures of everybody who was in the room listening as if they're all culpable. And what was interesting about this was that Mark Andreessen didn't say it. It was somebody else. So she misattributed it. It to uh, him. It wasn't like a group moderator. It was like the room moderator or yeah. something. Yeah, and said a woman, it. not a man. Um, not that you know, there's anything wrong with that. But uh, uh, and she also responded to that, um, not like by apologizing, but by saying, you know, uh, something to the effect of, uh, well, it's just amazing that that's you know they they use this kind of language and not understanding that the hurt that the causes, and um, and Glenn Greenwell rightly pointed this out. This is what are you doing, like. In the in the similar way of uh, Nicole Holland Jones putting out uh, phone numbers of reporters on you know like it's not hard to know that that's not what you're supposed to do in journalism. You're not supposed to go to a place, brag about it, like oh I finally snuck in. You know I'm going to do the thing now, and the thing that you do is to tattletale on language that maybe she genuinely finds so horrifyingly offensive that it's impossible to hear, and it really needs to be told to the world. Or maybe you think, aha, I'm going to pin this on this guy's forehead and bring him down. Um, that ain't journalism, dude. Well, the thing is that someone said something really funny to me last night. They said when Peter Thiel killed Gawker, he didn't just kill Gawker. He killed the New York Times because all of these Gawker writers went over to the New York Times, right? And what kind of journalism was, was practiced? practiced as Gawker. Late Gawker. Late Gawker. As opposed to early Gawker, which right, I think are two Gawker. different um, beasts. It was like this gotcha thing. And what's happened in in the New York Times is that it, it has been shown the past couple of years that you will be rewarded if you bring people down. If that's what you know how to do, if that's what we taught our children, you taught your 12-year-old and I taught my daughter when she was 12, that that's how you do it, kids, then, then that's what you know how to do. So maybe this is what 
Taylor Lorenz thinks journalism is. Now, okay, then it's like, you know, it's the youngs against the olds, and we're like the old people, like, no, 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 that's not, that's not how it's done. I know, I don't care, right? It's like, that's not how it's done, kids. Like, you really want to be ethical. You want to tell other people's stories with grace and, like, to, like, really look around. It's like, no, no, why would I do that? Why would I waste my time doing that when I can just get this, like, fast result? I also saw today, uh, in defense of Taylor Lorenz, all per usual, and again, I'm going to get on my hobby horse, all the women saying, why can't men support women journalists like Taylor Lorenz in this situation? It's like, well, if she did something that was laudable, we would all come out and be like, no, we totally support you. But she did not. Why can't men support women journalists like well, Nancy Rommelman? What I said was, how about you just like, no, what did they, they basically said, like, why don't you save women? I was like, how about you just save yourself? Save yourself, do really good work, put the work out there. You will get the peeps around you that you want to be with to create more good work. Hi, Jack Long uh, over there in the live chat says, do you think some of this witch hunt is due to someone being jealous of his success in the newsroom and taking advantage of the current climate? The thought had occurred. Yeah, good. Ding, ding, ding. Um, uh, who knows? I mean, we don't know. Uh, this is all supposition, although so far in this case, the suppositions have turned out to be um, pretty true. I, the, a thing I'll say about um, this is that a lot of the people – I mean. In every case with an employee uh, being fired at a place when you're on the outside, and sometimes, many times, even when you're on the inside, you don't really know what happens. There might be all kinds of backstories. Right, right. Um, I've been involved with these things, and people looking the outside and characterizing it, it's just like it doesn't really resemble reality. So I realize that I am trying hard not to add to the sense of making confident statements, of which I know uh, Bupkis. However, based on the language of the way that Dean Baquet was talking about based on the language eventually of the resignation letter itself um, um, and and just also on the original Daily Beast story, which um, painted a picture of a pattern of behavior without examples. <laughs> so there's something kind of funny about that. And the first time that we got together and turned on the machine just to see how it worked, um, that's kind of we focused on that element of it. Like, shouldn't there be a there in the, shouldn't there be there a what and, and in the story? That's the, one of the W's, right? This is a what. Um, and so uh, the Eric Wemple story, which, again, is about the only one from the Washington Post that uh, actually uh, re-interviewed the he kids. He did a good job. He, Wemple did a good job. Um, the things that they're mad at him about is that he denied um, the importance or even existence of cultural appropriation using tomatoes as an example. Right. If you're, if is, you're, it's an Italian, it's or a good, good I don't example, tomato, tomato sauce, something, it's like if it's, if it's Italian, then why are you allowed to use it if it wasn't from your culture? He, in a context of like, um, of, uh, of either white supremacy or white privilege or just sort of institutional racism, um, he was uh, presented with, well, you know, isn't it obvious that um, crime stats show institutional racism because there's disproportionate number of arrests of black people? And he said, well, what if they committed a disproportionate number of crimes? I happen to not agree with that answer. Um, is, that, uh, uh, is that evidence of racism and it's like no that's a, that's an argument that people make that's a, you have arguments over but they, data but, but like these are all teenagers. of the, and these are teenagers they're not going to have they're not they can't have arguments and i'm sorry this sounds terrible but you know these are teenagers white teenagers for the most part they're, they're for the most part they're you know they pay $5500 to go on this trip not a bad trip as a teenager and you know they're obviously from a certain culture i would think from the most part 
where it's it's they're they're feeling pretty certain in their opinions that there is you know white privilege and there is um, whatever their progressive beliefs are, and they're not able to argue or even like, even have a conversation probably with um, with McNeil. Gruff old guy reporter. And he's also, yeah, he's an old guy. He's 65 years old. They're 15. Like, What do we think gruff old guy reporters are like on trips? And they're tired, and they just want to go back and sit and have a cup of coffee, right? I don't know. But the bullet points of, of actual examples, none of them, none of them came close to anything of significance. And I bring this up because there are a lot of journalists out there um, who came at the likes of me and Nancy and said, well, come on, it couldn't have just been the N-word. There must have been a pattern of behavior that they're not talking about. Nope. Like, nope. Nope. Nobody can bring that up. And they're trying now. Of course they're trying because it's become this, it's become more than a kerfuffle. It's become, you know, a pretty big deal at the Times. Now, if they have the goods, bring them out. You know they're going to bring them out. They're going to come and say, listen, he's been X and Y and Z, but nobody can. The, the letter of, from the 150 journalists did say that since this came out, they've heard complaints from people that he's been disrespectful to colleagues. So I, I presume that if this stays in the news, and that's an if, it might not. Yeah. Like once the head's off, uh, off the, the shoulders, then I don't know how much of it needs to be in news. Unless it is like you have kind of uh, intimated um, that some people will see this as a potential turning point of like, come on. What are we doing I, here? I what, what, what the hell no, are we doing No, I, I think, I, I actually do think it is. And I think that too many people are addressing this not hysterically. It's not, they're not addressing it as an us versus them thing. They're saying, guys, we, you, you have to explain something to us. You have to explain the intent doesn't matter, number one. You have to explain the fact that you have come out and lied about something, you know, that was on um, your employee's Twitter feed. I'd like to answer, uh, just add a little something to, um, do you think people would like be try to remove people because they were more successful? I'll just give a little example. So Andy Mills, who was one of the creators of The Daily, and he was one of the producers and also kind of on, I think, uh, Caliphate. You know, uh, he... Whoa! <laughs> oh, hi! That's our little ring, ring light. light fail. Our ring light fail. Um, he, in December, in December, was given a fairly substantial promotion because he's really super good, right? Um, the drumbeat started in January. He resigned last week. Resigned, his letter is, is heartbreaking, which is like, you know, you get to the New York Times, it is your absolute dream. You get there, you have the opportunity to do incredible work, and then in six weeks, you are drummed out, and it's not, I mean, they're going to tell you for, it's for the quality of the work, but... It's no, okay. Nobody gives you a big giant raise for the work you've been doing in December, and then you don't really do any other work. But oh, in February you're gone. Something, something is is afoot here. And part of what he, I mean, he mentioned um, that uh, from his point of view, his resignation had nothing to do with Caliphate, which um, is you know uh, a subject of great controversy. It's kind of too complicated to get into, but one of the main characters was. Um, revealed to be a fabulist or somewhat of a fabricator or just a con man, whatever. Um, and so that called into question some of the series. They went back and and they withdrew it from competition or they, they had won a Peabody Award. And they took it away. And they took it away, a bunch of stuff. So yes, that was a controversy, but basically the controversy was then used as an excuse to exhume past 
uh, workplace behavior in which she was aggressively flirtatious seven years ago uh, okay. at a I different would job. Be, I would have no career whatsoever. If, if aggressive flirtation, <laughs> I'd be gone. I'd never work again. And there was also something like, I dumped a drink on someone's head. Well, I'm going to admit right now the time I was on a table and I kicked over a glass. I mean, it's like, uh, what? You're not allowed to do that with, when you're in your 20s? Who did you sexually harass at LA Magazine in the 1990s? Who didn't you sexually harass uh, at LA Magazine? Excuse me. Not, never, L, not LA Magazine, sorry. I never sexually harassed anybody. Sure. Um, <laughs> well, no, it's not LA Magazine. Why, why am I oh, the LA Weekly? Me? No, not the Weekly. The the Alan Meyer. What the the, the buzz, 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 buzz. Oh, I would. Yep. yep. Um, buzz had some uh, some great hot ladies. Oh hell yeah! Back in the day. Yeah, we, yeah. Good friends. Good. All. Um. Anyways, what were we talking about? Uh. Yeah. Uh, it's so they exhumed the, this and including his colleagues at New York Times, and so. Colleagues in quotes. Um, yeah, and to some degree, um, uh, like started talking about these past allegations, and the past allegations had been dealt with, or at least he'd been disciplined for them at WNYC, where he'd worked before, and they came up when he first took the job at New York Times, and that was part of the job interview process. And so there's an element here, and I think Wemple talked about this, among other people. Uh, in both cases of uh, Donald McNeil and Andy Mills, of double jeopardy. The things that they were being re-attacked uh, mm-hmm. uh, for were things that they had already um, been disciplined for in the past, but now we have Twitter and we have colleagues and we have other outside publications who are like, oh, you know, questions are, are being raised. Well, you've changed the rules of the game. You've changed the rules of the game. Right. So, yes, Andy comes from WNYC. He says, yeah, I had some problems there. I was a big flirt. I dumped a drink on some girl's head and times like, yeah, OK, whatever. We're going to hire you. You do great work. You get a pee buddy. It's all good. Well, the rules of the game have changed since he was hired. The rules of the game now is that is considered, uh, you know, beyond the pale. It's considered off limits. You can't dump it. You can't dump a drink on someone's head, especially not a woman's head, because that is now, I don't know, you know, Super aggressive behavior. Um, I was going to say something else. I forgot. Can I dump drink on your head? Or Please. That's what we're going to do. As soon as we're yeah. going to turn off the camera, that's Some what we kind of do. Simulations like, you know, like the, here. the wedding people that smash the cake, we just we dump the drinks. <laughs> so, um, so, yes. Uh, okay. A lot of things happened at the New York Times since the last time that uh, we uh, turned on the microphones. And are still happening. Uh, I don't think – I think it's a little bit – I mean, I would like to think <laughs> – there's a little bit of soul searching going on right now. I would like to think that upper management, which is caved and caved again, um, you know, starting back with the uh, the Tom Cotton uh, um, op-ed where, you know, first they're saying, you know, including Salzberger saying, well, you know, we have an obligation to publish it. And then two days later saying, oh, well, you know, it was rushed through. It's like they just keep, I call it kind of giving in to the demands um, I'm sure they probably see it differently. Maybe they think that this is the way toward progress. But I, again, I'm just going to come back to the two things. You've told us intent doesn't matter, and you have openly lied to your readers about what one of your uh, employees did. And this is a problem. And it's really evident to people from the outside looking in um, that the ethics are incredibly situational and opportunistic. Um, whatever the 
you know, excuse for not running uh, Tom Cotton's op-ed, and I shouldn't have to say this, but I despise Tom Cotton oh, and yeah. be happy to send him out on a slow boat to Mauritius. Um, but, like, he is a sitting U.S. senator, and he's making an argument that uh, about a policy that's been used in the past uh, to talk about a present controversy. It's kind of one of the things that happens at newspapers traditionally is to run op-eds from people like that. Um, the official justification for it could then be seen to have been violated almost immediately, but certainly when they're running propaganda from Chinese, red Chinese government officials, um, like, you know, th these things could be used in, the, in to support violence. Yes, pro-China stuff, like including today from Thomas L. Friedman, who weirdly still has a job, um, uh, this sort of uh, the, this will to authority of, uh, of China, um, you could uh, judge that on the Tom Cotton standard. And of course, it'd be ludicrous, just as you could judge an interview with Sting Stephen King, where he was talking about, um, you know, whether it's okay for him to have used the N-word in the past. Um, it's not hard to look on their, on their website, their search engine, and find the word that uh, uh, supposedly you can't even utter in a mention because the rules phrase changed. anymore. But that's it. Like, it's, it's so clear that uh, it's opportunistic. It's we're going to use this new definition today, right now, as there's a mob outside my door to make this thing go away. There was a phrase in a piece by David Fulkenflick, who works for NPR. Mm. Um, that's amazing to me. Uh, it was from an unnamed sta staffer. And they said this is right after um, the resignation of uh, Friday. We've lanced the boils. We've lanced two boils today. We've lanced two boils today. Okay. I'd like to say one thing about any word. Any word. I don't care what it is. I mean, tomorrow they could decide it's spaghetti, right? Obviously, I'm being I'm being a little glib here. The words have historically terrible meanings. When you take a word, any word, and then you treat it like plutonium, right? That's a weapon, right? So a word that the Times, even two weeks ago or two years ago, could use because it was used in context. Now, now it can't be, and they want to keep that a weapon. They want to keep it as strong as it possibly can be and pull it out when need be. And I think for anyone that cares about language, that cares about journalism, you have to open things up as opposed to closing them down. Um, the New York Times has to stop narrowing that shoot of what we're allowed to talk about. And uh, as importantly, and this is part of the reason why we're talking to you from a fancy studio that we yeah, built. that we here. built. Um, is uh, the these institutions are all going to get worse for a while now, except for a few conscious ones that that uh, decide to go in a different direction. Just like not necessarily that you have to give up on all of them. Well, we give up on a few, um, but especially those of us who write and talk about this, we just need to create new institutions. I mean, there's a reason why um, there's a reason why people have a sense of thrill at discovering certain podcasts or certain new people's substacks, or it could be publication or whatever. Um, just any zone where humans can talk like normal humans and not just go through these just weird, elaborate charades that don't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, there needs to be, uh, it seems as if there's a march on the institutions right now of journalism. There aren't very many exceptions to the rule. Um, it really sped up last summer in the wake of George Floyd. Um, so many, we've forgotten about them, but there's so many absolutely ridiculous 
defenestrations that happened in June and July wow. and May. Po- look, go look up Poetry Magazine. Um, uh, <laughs> go look up the uh, was it the San Francisco Museum, San Francisco Museum of Art, of uh, of art or of modern art. Um, like insane. We should post that op-ed. We never, we never, uh, we never ran. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah, we'll post it for you guys. It just it. it well, it, I mean, I, we won't. But whatever. We have it's to got look a, at it, but it's got a lot of people. Um, a lot of people because we wrote it during that time. Yeah. Um, uh, complicated to to describe, but. But it was like all over the place, and it's and it's clear there's more of that, not less, in institutions. There are entire editorial desks, like a new news divisions that are about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Although we got a letter at the fifth column uh, the other day saying it should be diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity, so that the acronym is DIE. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We yeah we don't want to die. We want to create new stuff and. Yep. And be able to keep talking to you guys. So um, keep telling us what you want to talk about. Yeah. And yeah. we will at some point um, figure out what Nancy's table is going to be. <laughs> and we'll also, I know we've had a couple of people asking like, yeah, we kind of like looking at your mugs over here on YouTube, but we'd really like to be able to stream it just as a podcast. We'll we'll get there. Come on, guys. We're just, we're trying here. Uh, it's a shoelace production here, so um, yeah, we're just uh, we're 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 testing out the equipment yeah. and figuring out. Yeah, but we will get that up to you soon, and we will also see you soon. And uh, let's go have another so, drink. All right. Okay. Late. Bye, guys. How much time was that? That was forty-one minutes. We're perfect. Like 41. Perfect. I think it's always perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little note. <laughs> it's off, it's off. <laughs>